customers need to really help the utility get leverage so that they can get money to do testing and expansive testing. Welcome to Geek Speak. I'm your host, Lyle Troxel. I live in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and on August 16th, 2020, uh, a lightning storm hit the area, hitting multiple strikes of wildfire starting. And this turned into the CZU, which is the fire district area we're in, lightning complex fire. Complex fire just means that it's complicated. The fire is currently, um, we're recording on September 6th, it's currently at a containment of 68%. It's burned about 86,000 acres. And about 925 people have lost their homes. Pretty massive fire. I'm currently back at my home. I was evacuated. I'm back in Boulder Creek, which is the Santa Cruz Mountains, kind of between the southern end of the Silicon Valley, if you will, over the mountains in the Santa Cruz area. This is a redwood forest, an oak and madrone forest. I've lived in this area all my life. The evacuation took me out of my home for about two weeks. I'm now back, but there are some complications. Uh, one, of course, the air quality is pretty bad. Uh, we're staying inside. But the other is that about five miles of high-density polyethylene pipe was burned in the fire. Um, this is a water supply main from a welling system up into the top of the mountain range in this area. The area is serviced by the San Lorenzo Valley Water District. San Lorenzo is the river that runs into Santa Cruz and the Monterey Bay. And I am curious to the kind of technical geeky qualities of what this pipe is, what happens when it burns, and and while researching this, I ran into Andrew Welton. He's an associate professor of civil engineering and environmental and ecological engineering at Purdue University, Westlake, Lafayette, Indiana. He has a BS in civil engineering, an MS in environmental engineering, and a PhD in civil engineering, all from Virginia Tech. Professor Welton also has some, done some postdoctorate work in environmental nanotechnology and polymetric materials. And he has a paper um, which has a wonderful abstract about the Tubbs fire in 2017 and the Camp fire in 2018 are the, the I'm reading with the abstract. The first known wildfires were widespread drinking water. Chemical contamination was discovered in the water distribution network and not in the source water after the fire. In both disasters, drinking water exceeded state and federal environmental, or sorry, federal governmental defined exposure limits for several volatile organic compounds or VOCs uh, contaminates, including benzene, um, which is probably one we're going to talk about the most. So I called uh, Andrew and I to agree to chat, and he's on the phone with me now from his home with kids running around the background. So if there are noises of kids needing bananas and such, that's his family. Thank you so much, Professor Welton, for joining me on GeekSpeak. Thank you, Lyle. And uh, thank you also for letting people know what the uh, banana crunching might sound like. That's right. So the paper I have not thoroughly read, but we're um, the community of, of, of the Santa Cruz Mountains are all talking a lot about this potential camp contamination. One of the kind of confusions around this is right now we're in a do not drink, do not boil uh, ruling from California that the water department is saying this is the ruling. And that in my now that I've learned a lot does not sound aggressive enough. My family and everybody I'm talking to, I'm saying don't use the water at all, maybe for flushing toilets. But if you could avoid having the water even flow through your house, that might be a good idea. Why is that? So after wildfires, the, the Tubbs fire and the Camp fire, there was hazardous waste scale contamination found in the drinking water system. And it wasn't everywhere, uh, but it was significant in some places. And that is generally why do not use advice is recommended because you would then not have that type of contamination come into your building and contaminate your plumbing or be exposed to it through bathing and other means. A water system is really a complicated thing, especially in a mountain range like this. Um, we have multiple wells. There's collection sources in the river. I'm actually going to probably talk with some people on, on one of the next episodes um, from the water department to kind of talk about the complexity of the water system. But um, just in the campfire and the tubs fire, from what you understand, how did the how did the contamination into the water system? So there's been no conclusive studies yet about the exact cause or the uh, proportion of cause. So uh, there's been several theories. First is that when the water system depressurized, um, there was air contaminated, you know, air, smoke, soot, and other materials sucked into the the buried water pipes. 
that mixed with the water and what leached out of that soot was the harmful VOCs and SVOCs, like um, PAHs. How would the depressurization cause water to in, cause contaminants into the pi- pipe system? How does that occur? Do you know? So the water pipes are generally pressurized. Um, so that means that um, if you were to uh, break a water pipe, you would have water come spitting out. And that is because it's under pressure. When you depressurize it, you basically uh, remove that pressure. But what happens is as you have one part of the system pressurized and the other part depressurizing, the water flows to the path of least resistance. It will move to that point and thereby leaving a void on the other side of the system. And if there's any breaks of pipes, then, well, what fills that void is the contaminated air. Yeah. That gets sucked into the system. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I recall when installing um, a, just a gardening water system at my house, it was crucial to have a, a check valve at that location because you would never want the, if, if water was lost, what pressure system was lost, you'd never want the garden hose to then suck stuff from the garden into the water system. So that's the, and the general protection of that is keep the system always pressurized with water. Keep it always pressurized. And then you have those valves that, that you're talking about that basically, so if the water wants to flow in the other direction, a hammer comes down and stops it. And okay. so it can't go anymore. And so that's called, generally, we use those as backflow preventers. That's what all the homes in paradise had to have installed when they were rebuilt. So that contaminated water from a home couldn't go back into the paradise water system. And Paradise, California is actually a, a community that was affected by the campfire in 2018, where multiple homes are and lots of lives were lost. It was a tragedy. Um, and you're saying that after that, black backflow valves have been put in. And that's not standard procedure? No, that's not standard procedure. Um, but it's a defensive measure to protect the utility distribution system. Yeah. And in, in that was recommended uh, after um, the campfire and during recovery. So one of the theories is that the soot and the ash and the burn material that's in this space and that got pulled into the system and maybe that's what caused the contamination. Yes. What's another theory? The other theory is that um, the, the, the infrastructure or the plastics, the, the, the plastic components in the meters, the plastic meters, the plastic pipes, the plastic fittings, um, or even some of the infrastructure in the, the building itself combusted, charred, and then that basically directly release chemicals directly into the water. If you have thousands of or hundreds of homes being burned, all of them have plastic piping and other things in the house, it burns, that same backflow problem might occur, and that kind of stuff can be pulled in. Right, and that's why you want to look at uh, areas, not just this this uh, high-density polyethylene pipe that, that melted and burned, but you want to go out into where the service area, you know, the pressure zones, and see which homes have been damaged. And those are typically the hot spots where you might find contamination the most. So you want to sample those first because that will tell you what chemicals are in the water that you should be looking for other places. Okay. So I, I think you're touching on something I definitely want to talk about, about infrastructure stuff, but let me, I want to get back down to this other discussion about this pipe. I mentioned this high density polyethylene, uh, polyethyl pipe that burned and I guess there's also a theory that that kind of thing could also cause the contamination because as that burns, the water in that system could be pulled in or whatever. Um, that, of course, was a pipe. The one in our area was a pipe that was a up a pipe was flowing up to the uh, cleaning system, cleaning station that they had. So I, it's a raw pipe. Uh, the water treatment plant. Yeah. And the other thing is that I, I from what I hear and I don't know all the details of this, that the water treatment plant was actually shut off from the system prior to the fire hitting that area, which means that that would probably be of low uh I don't see a big risk from that one causing any problems in the system. Of course, the repair and creation, that's a big issue. But I think a lot of the churn in our community has been about that pipe and about how it could have contaminated things. And I'm, I could see that it could potentially contaminate where the raw source came from, a well or the river, wherever it was coming from. But it, to me, it didn't seem like it would actually contaminate the homes from that it being raw prior to the you know, uh, water treatment system. Um, one of the things that like, really caught my eye from you is you were kind of commenting on the water department's meeting. And one of the things they were saying is that they were in compliance. And your response that was the biting the most was their compliance has nothing to do with the safety of the water in the homes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. What, what do you mean there? What was the concern? What was the thought there? That's true. So after the campfire, um, the, the utilities asked the regulator, what does it take to be in compliance with federal and state laws? And the utility responded that, well, the only place where we do testing of your water 
for these types of chemicals is where you start pumping it into the distribution system. So because we don't consider any monitoring anywhere else in the distribution system, you're in compliance, even though you have hazardous waste levels of contamination. What, what you're saying is, let's say you have a well and you take the well water and you put it into the system to start using it. At that point, you got to check the value of it, yes. which, of course, makes sense. We know that water, groundwater can be contaminated. You can have other concerns. So you always want to make sure you're using water that's safe enough that you can treat effectively. Right. It maybe has particulates that you have to st- get out of it. But in general, you want your raw sources good. So there's very strict rules about that. And that's the compliance thing that you're mentioning. The idea that the water department has no responsibility like has no testing or compliance issues around the other system doesn't make a lot of sense to me because they have large storage tanks. They have treatment system, you know, chlorine basically or other ways of treating the water. They have to know if that stuff is working. So at some level, there has to be some kind of test for the water quality after they clean it, process it, store it, right? There are there are testing that they have to conduct for monitoring, but it's not for, for VOC, like benzene and uh, anthracene and phenanthrene. Uh, they look for what you might have heard the other day on the call, THMs, these total trihalomethanes, which are VOCs, but they're VOCs produced because you use chlorine in, in just natural water. It's not because of the wildfire. And so there are things that utilities have to do for like operational monitoring to make sure their system's okay, but they don't do extensive testing throughout the water system to validate that. Uh, these other VOCs from fire um, or SVOCs from fire are present or not present. I, I'm I'm struggling, I think, as you know, myself, my family, people I know are struggling with the safety factors. Like right now, I'm, I'm in a warning evacuation zone. So I've got stuff in my car, uh, photos and stuff that I have not put back in my house because we might have to flee again. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I want to live here at some level. So I'm in this heightened state of like stress. My uh, cognition is not as strong. You know, I, I, I ground my coffee and then I also added beans to my filter, right? Instead of adding the ground coffee to the filter, I'm like not thinking well. And part of this also is this fear aspect, like, um, you know, looking at some dry grass near us and going, Oh, we got to rip that up and get rid of that. And like wanting to go out and do that because of, you know, protecting the boundary of your home when reality, that's not the highest priority in my life right now, right? There's other dangers that are higher. So I'm struggling emotionally. I think the community is struggling emotionally to be rational and thoughtful and safe and hearing and there was a lot of confusion with that water board meeting because people are saying wait you're saying that there might be a contaminant so don't drink it but the contaminants we're worried about would also be damaging to your skin but you're not saying don't use it so it's this really weird space that logically wasn't fitting until we heard that there's legal reasons for the water department to be specific about the way they communicate having to do with a, a water board at the state level yeah, I don't know if that um, if if that's valid. And, and the reason why I say that, first of all, let me say that I'm sorry that you, your family, friends, and community have, are going through this. Um, it's traumatizing. It's shocking. It changes your whole outlook on things. Um, you know, points of your life stop because you have to make sure that you can move forward. So, so I'm sorry um, that that happened. I and appreciate I'm sorry that. To, to the utility. Because the utility is trying to do the best they can under the circumstances that they're in. And under these situations, that's where external support effort, where there's technical expertise for people that know exactly what they're doing, should be able to come in and help the utility in the community walk their way through it. So um, the fact that the utility claims that they don't have jurisdiction to tell people to protect themselves is something that needs to be run to ground. And so during the campfire, the, the utility thought, the utilities thought the state would tell them if the water is safe or not. And when it came time to push and shove, the state said, that's not our responsibility. That's your responsibility. They don't want responsibility. You're responsible. And I don't think the utility in the San Lorenzo Valley Water District has had that conversation yet explicitly. And I think they need to mm-hmm. because at least in the other fires, it was responsibility of the utility to determine if the water is safe or not. And when you realize that it is your responsibility, you start doing things that that you think are most appropriate. And so I think utility wants to tell people not to use the water. But I think you heard the other day, they said they can't, which doesn't make any sense because of what I know about 
how utilities are regulated in California in their interactions and disasters. Yeah. Okay, thanks. I, I bring up that statement of myself and and where we are as a community and stuff because, you know, I it's very similar to COVID in some ways where I pull my kids out of the, the the school before the school closes and I start telling people, you really should not go to school, pull your kids out. And I feel a little bit crazy. And then later I'm like, oh, no, it was justified. Like we should have pulled out. Everybody should have, you know, been more protective early on. So I'm like, okay, that was good to be that way. And now people are trying to get together and, and spend more time together. School's opening up at some level. And I'm like, am I being too concerned here? And that's kind of where I am at this water situation. Like, you know, the San Lorenzo Valley main line, which is called, it's Highway 9, is the, the freeway that comes through the main road. The department's saying, look, pressure was always there and strong. So you're, it's going to be okay there. And so my, my general take is that most likely in a little while I'll be using the water, you know, and it's not going to be a disaster for me personally, mostly because of where my house is, how close it is to the pressure system. Um, but at the same time, why not be careful? So I'm just balancing my concern about being careful and not trying to be an alarmist and scare people. I want to come out of this where the community feels they can trust the water department and we all know that the right things have happened. And I think the water department's doing really some great stuff about transparency. Um, so the the potential lockdown of information from the state or whatever that is, is really disrupting that trust. And that's concerning to me. And you're right. They might come out of that going, wow, that was bad. We should have had ownership earlier. And if they have a bit of a mea copa for that, then I'll have a lot more faith in the, in the group. In general, I have to say, I feel pretty good about the people that I saw on that call and the one that they're taking care of this problem. Yeah. I've talked to them. Yeah. I, I've talked to them and they, they, they want to do the right thing. They want to help people. They want to help the community rebuild. They know water is so important to, to living for public health, sanitation, um, economics, business development. I mean, they, they understand that. Yeah. It's, um, you know, community after community in California, at least, keeps having these disasters happen and, and there's a different cast of characters that shows up and everybody has their own opinions about things and no experience with responding right. to these right. types of disasters. So um, it's frustrating for the community. It's frustrating for the utility and um, you know, just by applying, you know, logic and a, a strong approach, you can find your way through it and, and become stronger. When you spoke with them, you explained that that the possibility of the contamination is happening from individual buildings burning. You explained that kind of problem state to them, or they already understood that. I, I explained the fact that um, you can have contamination where the buildings are damaged. Um, you would have back siphonage of that contaminated water into the bill uh, into the water system. It may actually move down the street and be sucked up into somebody else's building who had their water on. Um, or you can have firefighters, you know, using water that's contaminated and they drag it across the system, uh, to fight the next fire. And so you, you really don't know the infrastructure. And one of the, one of the issues that I, I stressed enough is you have to test fast. You, you have to collect the water samples fast and you have to look for everything that you need to be looking for. And then once you do that, you can sit down and look at the lay of the land and figure out what you can do next, where is the contamination, what you'd be looking for, and then who, where can you lift the orders where people yeah. can, can resume the normal activities and where do you need to spend it? I heard that they've gotten a few preliminary tests and that they went ahead and did like uh, have 40 more samples or something that they've taken that they're trying, that they're waiting on results. And that sounds like a more, like the first three or so was probably just the inflows and like the places where they traditionally would test and these later sites, I'm assuming, are multiple sites across the water system. And why is speed of essence? Why, why is it so important to test quickly? You have to just tip your hat to the, the people just trying to do their best, right? They, they, they shut down the system two days early. Basically, they started isolating it and defending it. They, they came in after and they started testing. Now, they didn't take 100 tests or 300 tests, but they did what they could. Um, it's important that they blanket the system because you need to know where the contaminated assets are if they're there and you need to look for the right thing. So testing for VOCs is good. I mean, that's what should be done, but it's also been recommended based on the two other fires to test your VOCs, these semi-organic chemicals. Do you mind if we talk a little bit of the chemics, chemistry about this? From what sure. I understand of, of my chemistry class in, in high school, I think maybe one in college, organic chemistry is basically any chemistry that has carbon in it. Um, that's organic chemistry. So when you think about petroleum products, all the output of that is 
um, organic organic compounds. And the organic compounds that are, of course, more concerning are those that are volatile. You know, we, we deal with a lot of these things. A lot of solvents in your home have the stuff in them. It's very useful. We use it all the time. It also happens to be side effects of any kind of high energy destruction of any kind of um, carbon uh, based material. So you burn plastic, you get all these kind of random uh, organic compounds. Sometimes they're volatile. So what what's so bad about like something like benzene, which is the one we're talking about, volatile coming. We'll get into semi-volatile a little bit. What's so dangerous about that being in a water system? It's a carcinogen, as well as many others are. Um, it is um, a, a problem, um, but it also can come from burning trees and burning brush. So, so these VOCs that you you mentioned can come from all sorts of sources, which is why we're having a hard time figuring out where exactly the contamination is coming from. One part of the water system, it might have come from smoke. The other one, might have, other side, might have come from plastics burning in situ. The other ones were, you know, things burning in that in somebody's house that got sucked into the system. So, so it's really difficult. The VOCs are um, they they partition from um, the liquid to the vapor phase, and so if you if you put them in water, they generally don't like to be in water. They like to be in the air. And so one of the issues with exposure is inhalation. So whether you're, you're washing fruit at the kitchen sink or you're um, taking a shower, whether it's a hot shower or a cold shower, you still have chemicals going into the air. Uh, under normal circumstances, they're not a problem. But when you have contamination at the scale that we've seen in the wildfires, then yes, that's a potential problem. And, and you're saying at normal levels are not a problem because the, the amount is so low. Um, yes. you know, you, you take some, you, you decide to, to fry something in a pan, it's organic material, it's frying. Some of the VOCs are released. Some of those are not actually good for you, but it's very low amount. Um, and so over a long period, it's probably not that big a deal, but in a situation where you have a high density of this kind of stuff, um, it's so much that your systems can't hit, take it and you can get sick from it. Volatile stuff, as you said, it likes to be in the air. And it's interesting that you say this because I hadn't even heard about the idea that it's really not about the water itself potentially touching your skin, though that could be bad. But if you have the water around you and it's producing all the stuff in the air, then you're going to be breathing that in. And that's the major problem. And I that's get right. that the volatility means it's going to be kind of in the air. Don't most, aren't most of these vol, uh, volatile uh, organic compounds something that your, your nose can detect? Can't you smell them? No. Um, so some of these compounds you can smell um, uh, before they're toxic and other compounds uh, you cannot smell when they're... T- so could you hold on one second? Sure. Hold on one second. Yeah, yeah. Andrew is a father of three I've picked up, and he clearly um, is on, on kid duty today. It's a Sunday, so it was really nice for him to chat with us today. So just to give you some background, like VOCs are common in drinking water. And so typically they, they regulate uh, these things called trihalomethanes. Those are VOCs. And those are produced when chlorine reacts with organic material that's just naturally found in water. And so they create these VOCs and there are limits at which those can be created in the water system. And then the utility has to test to make sure that those limits are not exceeded. The compliance so, thing you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So the utility already tests for these chlorinated VOCs, but they're not testing in the distribution system for like large scale SVOC and uh, v- VOC contamination related to wildfire. So the, the you can't. So you, I had asked about smelling them, and you said you can't smell them. So right. uh, we're not sure why we can't smell them, but we can't smell them, and that's that's true with actually uh, natural gas. I think you can't smell, but they add impurities to it, or they add they add stench to it, so that we can smell it, so we know there's a, a leak, and that's that's interesting to me. So of course, this this stuff that could get in the water system, you might not be able to tell at all that it's there, and it could be there at high enough volume, or it'd be dangerous. That's right. And, and there's two questions that you need to ask yourself. And one is the regulatory requirements that generally are done. Those regulatory requirements are established for long-term exposure. So you're going to drink water every day for 70 years and it's going to have a certain chemical in it. But during disasters, what we're most concerned about, well, what we should be most concerned about is acute exposures. So if I drink water with one part per million of benzene, I'm not going to pass out. But if I drink water with 40,000 parts per billion of benzene, like was found in the Santa Rosa distribution system, I may vomit and have nausea and and all these other things. So that is really what the issue is. You have to protect yourself against acute exposures 
And then, yeah, you're looking at these chronic long-term 70-year exposures. Okay. That's good to know. All right. So you mentioned the VOCs like benzene and stuff. And that was, of course, a big reason why that's a focal point is that we had such high levels of contamination in the other fires in California. And we know that people got sick from it and it was very bad. And it's still very bad. There's another part of this is that um, the water system after this kind of high level contamination can be damaged for a long period of time because this material can get stuck in the pipe somehow. Is that can you explain that? Yeah. So going back to the other fires, we don't know if benzene was responsible for causing the harm that people experience. We do know that they had interactions with contaminated water and some people did feel bad after or um, had vomited or had nauseous or something like that. And generally, after wildfires, it's a concoction of chemical contaminants, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's not just one. Right. And when you're exposed to multiple chemicals, sometimes there's uh, antagonistic impacts where if you're just exposed to one, it would be worse. But when you're exposed to a bunch, it's less. Or when you're exposed to um, just uh, multiple, it can be synergistic impacts. So when you're exposed to one, it's not as bad. But when there's a mixture of things, it can actually exacerbate the symptoms. So that's one of the issues with the toxicology of this, understanding what the health impacts are. And that's why you really need to understand the matrix, mm-hmm. what's in the water, so that you can determine what levels are safe for exposure. So t- tell me about these um, S- SVOCs. What's different about them and why are, why are they? It sounds like they're not as talked about as much. So SVOCs are larger compounds. So volatile compounds are generally light organics. And SVOCs, or semi-volatile organic compounds, are heavier. And those don't necessarily volatilize into the air. So they stay in the water. And they're more like fatty tissue in our body. Uh, so they so they can basically accumulate as well. Wow. And that is one of the issues. They don't dissolve into water as much. But when you get them, uh, they have very low uh, drinking water exposure limits, which is why we don't want them in our body. Okay. I, I guess I didn't, you answered something that was interesting, but I asked a question about the materials getting caught in the water system. Like in a, a simple idea of like, oh, the water system gets contaminated. All we have to do is flush the water system for the period of time where the water, the fresh water is fully uh, full, filled the system and then the material should be out. That's naive. What's wrong with that idea? Well, so for let's say infrastructure materials like copper and and iron. So the atoms uh, for copper and iron are very close to one another and that's what gives them their right strength. So if you hit a piece of iron or copper pipe, it it hurts. Um, But whereas, um, so it doesn't allow the chemicals to get into the pipe. But if you have uh, plastics like polyethylene, those atoms are not that close together. There's actually space, which gives you the ability for it to be lighter because there's less atoms and also because it's more flexible. And, but that space allows chemicals to go into the plastic. And then over time, it will come back out into the clean water. And so that's the difference between how different materials perform. I see. So because our infrastructure has so much plastic potentially in it, collecting, it, it actually lacks like a bit of a sponge and then releases it again. Or similar to how these SVOCs could get into our, our system. We, we take them in and they hold on to us or hold into our fats and stuff. See, that sounds can, like, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say that the, 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 the performance of it isn't just, you know, if benzene zero will automatically go in and then we'll come back out. There has to be a driving force to it. So if there's a concentration gradient, if there's a lot of contaminated water in contact with that plastic, uh, then it will drive it in. And then when you flush all that out and bring clean water in that those VOCs or SVOCs will start leaching out into that clean water, making it either contaminated or, or below the limit. And that's uh-huh. really what takes a long time to recover. Okay. So it sounds to me like still it's a very good idea for the communities that potentially are in this space that could have contamination to avoid using the water as much as possible um, until more and more tests come out. Even at a multiple... I mean, I'm assuming the closer to the fire or the closer the system was to the fire, the, the potential higher risk in some ways. But we don't really know with a complex system like this where water could move and where it might not move. You might. Um, so there's a lot of complexity there. If you lived in this area, 
Um, what would you be doing? What would I'm assuming you wouldn't be using the water, but let's say you decided to stay here. What would you then do as the system, you know, as the water system says, okay, we've tested it, this community's safe. What would you do yourself? So the testing that's been done thus far isn't adequate. And again, it's not the fault of the utility because this is their first experience and they did the best they can. What I would do is I would find ways to try to help them get rapid, expansive testing as fast as possible. Because as a community member, you want to know what's in the water because you're going to hire a water treatment company if there is contamination and you're going to want to install some treatment or get a water tank. In order to do that, you need to know what you should be looking for. And the water utility and their testing is your best bet to understand what's going on. They just need to, to basically um, to flood the flood the system with people collecting water samples and, and testing. What you suggest is that the community kind of asks that we get more extensive testing, test for more things, more VOCs, more SVOCs, and at multiple locations as, as quick as we can so that we really start understanding the system and complexity. That's yes, one thing that's probably really good if that could happen. And they can do it but by activating mutual aid. So I'm sure you've seen power trucks driving down the road heading towards a disaster zone before. And that is mutual aid. One power company calls the other and says, I need help. I don't have the personnel for this. Your utility can do that. They can call in the other utilities around the state or the region, and they will come in. They responded to Paradise. They responded elsewhere. And so that's where you get people who know how to take samples, right? who know how to fix hydrants, who know how to do all this stuff. And you basically have an army of people come in and help bring the community back together, flood the zone with testing. And now you as a community have data. So I don't see that happening, yeah. but that needs to happen. Couldn't a staff of how, you know, 30 people, couldn't 30 people get enough samples? Is the samples the problem or is the test the problem or is it both? So the issue, the first issue is the number of samples. I mean, you need to be taking 100 samples, 300 samples a week. I mean, that's a scale of effort. And and then the laboratories, and you can't use one laboratory. You have to use multiple laboratories. Because they don't have the volume? Funneling that data back because they can't handle the volume. And so you heard the other day on Zoom that, that the utility is supposed to get a 24-hour turnaround time, and it's taken like seven days. So that's like a really big problem. It's like something's something's not working there. And the utility needs to start branching out to other other um laboratories to, to help them how complicated are these tests like i mean could the university of california which is right here could they be doing these sample these uh testings they they likely could if they had the resources i'm sure they have the equipment so generally you need um, gcms devices and these are you know gas chromatographs max spectrometers that are available on campuses but one of the issues is the state requires a certified laboratory often to do testing Hmm. And so one of the reasons why universities, which may be in the disaster zone, aren't looked to for help is because they don't, um, you know, cross all the T's and dot all the I's that the state considers as reputable. Wouldn't it still be viable to have them testing even if they weren't certified to get a, a baseline, a comparison, a, a confirmation, a faster return on information? Like, sure, certification is essential for the actual trust, but more data um, is still useful, wouldn't you say? I would say UC Santa Cruz is yeah. a perfect partner that if they can get engaged and they could do a great deal of good. One of the issues with universities, however, is that the faculty, the staff and students don't have money to get there. And uh, communities like um, yours has the ability to apply for FEMA funds to help during the recovery. So if you can justify that it is part of the recovery you could likely use FEMA funds or, or state funds to support other activities uh, during the recovery. Mm -hmm. it, it would be highly recommended. And I've talked to some folks out at Santa Cruz, but there doesn't seem to be a mechanism by which they can start helping. Okay. So because the, let me just play a, a bit of an, a devil's advocate for a moment. Um, because the department had a strong pressure line in their main trunk, if you will, in most of their homes and such. And they've, I'm assuming, closed that off completely now to areas that uh, had loss of pressure due to fire, hopefully. If they do enough tests, some level, and there seems to be nothing different with the water than what it used to be um, in, the, in, in that picture, this is a very different problem? Or do you still think it's something that we should be vigilant against? Like, 
Is there some point where you you would be less concerned because of the general take of the first set of 40 samples or whatever? Yes. So 40 samples is, is not going to be representative. And you're going to have to keep hammering the same locations. So what we found in Santa Rosa was that sometimes the level of benzene was below one part per billion. And then three weeks later, when they took the sample, it was 10, which in one was the state's threshold. So we know that water moves around the system and sometimes contamination moves around the system. So that's why you flood the system with sampling to figure out where everything is at a single snapshot in time. And you keep hammering it over and over. Will there be a point at which you would feel good about it? Yes, absolutely. If you do enough sampling and if you look for the right things, VOCs and SVOCs, you can determine the integrity of the system and then make decisions about whether or not you should be lifting advisories to, to become do not drink advisories or uh, to be, you know, there is no advisory. The water is safe to drink. I would say what you all are going through is not like really what anybody else has gone through. Um, there's campfire in New Paradise, California and Butte County. Um, they experienced um, some tragedy as well as Santa Rosa and the Tubbs fire in the community around there. Um, the important thing to realize is that there is a path out of this where you can have safe systems where you don't have to worry about the water. And to do that, you got to follow the data and the science. Supporting your utility is really important because they need the, the power to go to elected officials that, that can help them with these issues. You know, they want to protect you. I know that. And the, it's just making sure that they have access to the funds to do that and the ability to make decisions and the experts to, to make it happen. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, one other little thought I had is having to do with um, the piping and stuff that's used. It seems like, well, if that's a problem with non-metal pipes, all the pipes should be metal from here on out. I mean, that's obviously, you know, start using iron again, start using more copper. I would assume that financially that's a problem. Is that why it's not, why plastics are used? Generally, um, plastics are, are used because of uh, financial considerations, generally. And as you heard um, Mr. Rogers say the other day, they would have to airdrop infrastructure into place to repair it, regardless of whether or not it's plastic or um, metal. So yeah, pl um, financial considerations is generally what drives people to replace their metal infrastructure with plastics or to use plastics instead of metal or concrete. And it also seems like this idea that Paradise went through of having building regulations require a backflow check valve um, of course, that takes that put, probably puts on the onus of, of people that build um, a little bit more infrastructure expense. But it seems like that also might be a useful thing to do in a uh, fire environment um, to actually pass legislation for the county level. In Paradise, there was, uh, I think it was like three or $4,000 per check valve. And it was put onto the homeowner who or building owner that was rebuilding. That was their responsibility. I believe Paradise was able to get some grants um, from a foundation to, to pay some of that cost. Um, but that, that is one code approach that you can take. Another code approach is if you know that plastic meter boxes, plastic meters, plastic pipes are vulnerable to fire, you either uh, deal with it and say, well, we're okay with that, or you defend them better, or you don't use them for certain applications. So, a plastic pipe buried four feet below the ground is likely not going to burn. But at the meter, that is where it may burn. And so maybe you use a different type of material for those connections, and then you basically go down to plastic below ground. So there, mm -hmm. there's unique ways to deal with these issues and not abandon the cost altogether, but have some cost considerations. Could you see this being a California issue in general where more building stringencies occur to the California level to handle this kind of stuff? So I don't know what's going to happen in California. Uh, I testified at the Oregon State Legislature um, last, last year, I think it was, about wildfire caused damage to infrastructure. And they were very concerned about the vulnerability of plastics to fire. Mm -hmm. And they did not want to see a campfire happen to their community because of just the cost and the expense and the trauma that's associated with it. 
Yeah. Didn't end up enacting, I believe, anything. Uh, it was just a listening session um, that they invited me for. But but these are real discussions that communities need to have. You probably won't see it unless it happens at the county or state level. I'm still a little confused to why the state is not saying don't use it if there's potentially these issues and such. What What is the relationship between the state and the water board's responsibility? Earlier you said that the water board's responsible for make, the water district's making making sure the water is safe. Um, are there state are there any responsibilities from the state level? So at a declared disaster, under Title 42 of the Safe Drinking Water Act, a federal law, the state is required to provide emergency water supply. So if a community has extensively contaminated water or they just don't have a water system intact anymore, the state is by law required, not the utility not the um, big basin water company, not the uh, <clears throat> San Lorenzo Valley Water District, the state. And that means that um, the decisions to about what type of water advisory use to be put into practice for a community that's impacted disaster is influenced by state input. Okay. So why wouldn't the water, I mean, do they know that, do you think, the water district? I don't know if the water district understands that by law, the state is required. Because the water district's providing bottled water in town so people have something to drink. That's great. And maybe the state is authorizing the funding in using the water district to deploy those resources. Okay. So is this a – like what, what's the reasoning to not like, – I still don't really get from a safety perspective. You know, everybody wants everybody to be safe, right? That's like a primary responsibility of, of government. So why isn't the state just saying don't, you know, stop, don't use the water? There's these volatilities. If you have a certain parts per million, you can actually have you know, issues with children. I mean there's, there's concerns. Why aren't they just doing that now? Do, do you think this is just a big political thing? Do you think insurance companies are involved? Is, I don't want to get you know, tinfoil hatty here, but what do you think is going on? So I know that there have been uh, some in the state government who have claimed that a do not use order means that the entire water system and water use shuts down, that you can't use it for firefighting, that you can't use it for toilet flushing. And that's just not true because we have seen it throughout the nation where they have issued do not use orders, but they have allowed firefighting and they have allowed toilet flushing. They just didn't allow it to have skin contact or bathing in. So there is nuance there with what a do not use order is. And I do not know the motivations okay. for warning the population. So you're kind of getting at it's like if they did do a do not use order and it and by some interpretations, you have to shut the water system down, like have to have people stop using it. Then the problem would be that people couldn't live in their homes because they can't flush the toilets. They can't really live there at all. You, you'd have a you'd have to red tag all the buildings. And of course, the firefighting would have a problem. So you're saying that maybe that's part of the reasoning and then the argument against that is but you could just say do not use except in this case uh, potentially so there, there might be that some of that motivation might exist there i kind of understand that at some level it seems very risky not to be extremely clear that you shouldn't use the water at this point so that's concerning to me right. okay so i think that the, i think that it sounds like the kind of takeaways of what the community should be doing is understanding that empowering the water district is actually a really important thing because we're going to have wastes of resources all over the place by people trying to have testing and it's not actually going to achieve the desired effect which is long term we want to have a water system that works and so empowering that water district makes sense empowering probably reaching out to state and local officials to say look we need more resources in fact we should probably ask for a uh, mutual aid situation, activate mutual aid so that other water companies can come in here and do testing immediately, potentially ask um, for FEMA funding to uh, have money to maybe reimburse the university to hire people to use their labs, but in general, use multiple labs to get testing done. And then the other aspect of this is uh, the understanding that the state could be more involved relatively easily by understanding that this is a disaster and therefore the state's responsible for the waters uh, provided for the community. Those are the things we need to push at some level. Um, one other thing we didn't get to, there's a lot of chat on Facebook and stuff about people just buying systems for their homes, you know, come in and get a company to install a water cleaning system. Of course you can do. I used to, the property I lived in a couple years ago was a five, uh, 
five house property and I managed the water system. It was a tank, it was a well, and we just kind of dealt with it. And we did have a company come in and test it every once in a while and, and clean our system because we wanted some professionals. So I know that's possible. It's a lot of work. What's the downside of people just getting a filtration system? And also, of course, the insurance company might pay for it to get them back in their home. So what's the downside there or the concern there? So post-wildfire, what you're about to see is water companies, water home water treatment companies are going to flood the area. And they're going to try to sell products to help people address their concerns. And the concerns right now are removing bad stuff that may or may not be there from the water. One of the issues, however, is that your best bet to figure out if home treatment systems are necessary is thorough testing and aggressive testing by the water utility of the water system. So for the VOCs and for the SVOCs. And why? Because they are your best bet at finding out what's actually in the water that might come into your home. And if nothing's there, great. If they find that it's a, a, a mixture of some carcinogenic, well, now you know that. You can take that information, you can call out that home water treatment company and say, this is the situation, this is my water. When home water treatment companies come to your house or building and they are going to test, what they're going to do is they're going to take one water sample, one time. They're going to analyze it for uh, $250 to $550, analyze it and come back and tell you either you have something, which would be really surprising if they find it at one sample, one time, or they're going to recommend a preventative approach that can protect you. But if they don't know the scale of contamination, they will just be putting something out there that may or may not be effective for what they claim it is. And this is a problem, which is why you need to push the utility to thoroughly test the water system. Okay, let me let me translate that and see if I got this. What you're saying yeah. is the water com- the company will come out, test your water once, give you a system that would make your water better for that situation. And then if there's nothing really there that's problematic, like not the benzene levels, not high, whatever it is, they might actually have their system be a little bit beefier and say, this will handle some cases and sell it to you. Then what actually happens is the levels get a lot higher and the system you bought is not sufficient for it. Now you've already gotten a claim against your insurance company. You've already paid the system that's actually not efficient, not functional for the levels that you might get to. And we talk about a filtration system like a carbon filter system. It will capture stuff, but filters fill up. And that's why they have a certain lifespan. And if you have a small enough system that's supposed to handle some level, but the contamination level is a lot higher, it just won't work. It'll fill up really quick. You'll get water for a little while, and then you won't get any water anymore. And so the problem is that they can't be effective without knowing the scale of the issue. And the only way to know the scale of the issue is to find out what the water testing across their entire system is. And that's one of the major problems with it. And I guess there's a financial gain, right? That company has a motivation to sell you things and you have a motivation to live back in your house and the insurance company wants you back in the house. And so that can really compound a situation that just doesn't make a lot of sense where you'd end up having a system that wouldn't be appropriate and you're back in your home and then the water goes away and the insurance company says, we already handled this. It's your problem. So there's some real issues there. Did we see that kind of situation happen in the other fires? Yeah, we did. And and even just two months ago, I was still in communication with somebody who's having issues with their home. And they installed the treatment system. So they they installed the treatment system uh, from one of the major manufacturers, which just to put out there, these treatment systems are not certified to remove hazardous waste scale contamination from the water. They're not certified. So you may hear there's a certified treatment system. Well, it's not certified for that purpose. Okay, there is no standard. There is no certification for that. Now, this, this individual uh, had her water tested the, the water testing company gave her the results and she found a chemical that wasn't found in Paradise's water system above safe limits. After months of going back and forth, it was discovered that the laboratory by mistake contaminated their sample. But she is not a scientist. She's not an engineer. She's not a medical professional. And here she is trying to read commercial laboratory reports to determine if the water treatment company that she hired, which is a reputable one, knew what it was doing and if she should buy that system. Mm-hmm. It's really complicated and people might feel like they're on their own if they've had no prior experience with the water testing in, in treatment device selection. 
Yeah. Okay. That's another really good reason not to get into that. You have to become an expert because you have one company that's financially wants to sell you something. And of course, their system's going to do some things. It's a filter, right? It's going to work at some level. So at some point, they're not really doing anything wrong by selling you a system. But if it's not really achieving the purpose, all it means is that you're paying for something else that has maintenance costs and all these things. And then the other aspect of this is, you know, to be really informed person on purchases of this nature, you have to get knowledgeable in the space and being coming up an expert in water impurity systems, you might know from your PhD and postdoctorate work, it takes a while. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not an expert in everything. Uh, I've things I've spent time in, and uh, you will find people in the disaster and as they're recovering become experts uh, because they just have to. So they they never thought about water treatment, and now they have to for their friends and family. Um, so it's really important that the utility does extensive, expansive, and thorough testing for what to look for. And that will actually benefit these home water treatment companies because you won't have situations where you had an, a campfire disaster where water treatment companies sold devices to people thinking one to two parts per billion of benzene is water. And it was in one place over 2,000. And so you don't want to be put in that situation, which is why customers need to really help the utility get leverage so that they can get money to do testing and expansive testing. Professor Andrew Welton, thank you so much for joining me. You can follow Andrew on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's at the Welton Group. At the Welton Group on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Geek Speak. I'm Lyle Troxell. I want to thank Cal Fire and all the firefighters across the state, across the country, and globally that flew in to help save our town and fight this blaze. And a special call out to four volunteer fire departments that are incredible people. The Felton Fire Department, the Bonnie Doon Fire Department, my hometown of Ben Lomond, the fire department there, and the Boulder Creek Volunteer Fire Department. These people spent tireless days fighting this blaze, saving hundreds and hundreds of homes and our communities. The town of Boulder Creek and Brookdale and Ben Lomond still stand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you'd like to support this program, please don't. Go support one of these organizations that I just mentioned. Or you can find out how to support people directly. The Community Foundation of Santa Cruz County has a page on their site um, about resources on who you can help and how you can help. That's cfscc.org. Of course, in your podcast player of choice, you just click on this episode. It'll take you to the geekspeak.org site. And I will have on this episode a whole bunch of links uh, for resources that you might want to consider giving some of your um, hard-earned dollars to. I really appreciate it. I'm sure those other people appreciate it. The other thing that I appreciate is right now, as I am spending my Sunday afternoon recording and editing this podcast to help further some information about what's going on, my wife is outside uh, cleaning up ash um, from around our property, uh, making sure our, gar our garden doesn't die, and in general, making our homes safe for our family. So Maggie Hoogs, thank you so much. I couldn't do this show without your support. Thank you all for listening. I'll be back next time.